Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. We are in the book of Matthew, and this is our, our third weekend, so welcome to our 11 o'clock service. We're so glad that you're here. Um, my, my topic for today is God with us, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Did you happen to notice the slide I was using that, that it had the nativity? Did you see that? It had the Star of David in there and stuff like that. Since I mean, I had been preparing to talk to you about, uh, about this, this chapter and verse about, about Joseph being told that Mary is with child and the angel appearing to Joseph. And it's such a Christmas story. Uh, we're not talking about Christmas today, but, but I was just in the mood. So I had, to use, I had to use one of the slides. This is our, this is our third week in, in Matthew. And uh, it's going to take us a while. I remember the very first week, uh, we talked about just one verse. Remember just one verse? It was Jesus, the son of David, uh, son of Abraham. Last week, we went through the genealogies. And I, and I like that. I hope you did too. It's interesting because this is talking about the generations leading up to Jesus Christ. And Matthew uniquely used three women in the story of the generations. It was, it was wonderful to see Matthew doing that. It, by the way, it, it's, it's one of the reasons we take a look at Matthew and understand how special this gospel is. We believe that the gospel of Matthew is the first gospel. It's, it's written, it was written first. It was also placed first in the, in the Bible. Uh, all of the early church fathers attributed to Matthew, and Matthew is also known as Levi. Levi was a tax collector. He was very fastidious, and he, he was a writer. Uh, and we can see that there's evidence that he actually was compiling some of this Gospel of Matthew, uh, not 30, 40, 50 years later, but as it was happening. And there's evidence in the Gospel of Matthew as we go through it. He says, even to this day, meaning that he's writing it you know, somewhere at the same time that Jesus was there. So it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's going to be fun. Now, last week, uh, we, we talked about, about it, was, it was Joseph, the husband of Mary, remember, generations? Uh, but we didn't spend much time talking about Joseph, did we? And that puts me on par with every other pastor in the country. Uh, we don't talk about uh, Joseph much because uh, there's not written much about Joseph. Uh, there, there really isn't. You know, there's other than Matthew and Mark has him in the genealogy. And then we'll see that in, in Matthew... Um, uh, when Jesus is going to the temple. Remember, Jesus goes to the temple at 12 years old. He's presented, and Mary and Joseph are there, and Jesus stays behind. They start traveling back to Galilee, and they're worried because he's not with the troop. And that's the story, and that's when Jesus was around 12 years old. Uh, but we do know, we do know his occupation. We do know the occupation of Joseph. He, uh, he was a carpenter. Um, maybe you know these verses. This is one out of Matthew, one out of Mark. Uh, it says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother named Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Uh, that's Matthew chapter 13. And then uh, Mark has the same type of story, but it's actually about Jesus. So Jesus was also a carpenter. It says, is this not the carpenter? Uh, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. Okay, so they, The idea was this, is that he was, he was the rabbi. He was teaching them. And it's like, he's just the carpenter. 
He's just the carpenter. Now, this word carpenter, you might have heard, um, can be translated as mason. Have you heard that before? Some people make a big deal that we've got it wrong, that he wasn't a carpenter, that there was actually very few trees in, in Galilee. Well, what did they sit on? Okay, of course he was a carpenter. So the idea was this, that this word tecton, which is the Greek word that's translated as carpenter, could also mean a handyman, a person that worked with mason, worked with metals. Uh, but all the evidence is, is that, that Jesus was, a, was a, a carpenter. We know this. We know that Joseph was a hardworking man. He was a laborer. He wasn't an aristocrat. He was, he was a hardworking man. He, he worked with his hands. And he provided for his family. He was a hardworking guy. Now, one of the questions I have for you, speaking of Joseph, we're going to spend a couple minutes on this. Speaking of Joseph is, is and there's no right or wrong answer to this, okay? But I, but I want you to think about it. How old was Joseph when he married Mary? When Jesus was born, how old was Joseph? Now, the Bible doesn't say. So like I said, there's no right or wrong answer. But perhaps you're thinking of how old Joseph was, was based on either some teaching outside of the Bible or maybe some pictures you saw, some paintings you saw. So for example, maybe you saw this. This is a 16th century artist named Fettuccini. He's an Italian. And he's, he's drawing a baby Jesus along with Joseph. And Joseph is, is an old man. Here's, a, here's another one. This Guido Rene is another Italian artist and he's a very famous artist. He did a lot of, he's like a Michelangelo. He's a very, very famous artist. And he also depicts Joseph as, a, as an old man. That was the 16th century. Now, actually, this is a contemporary painting. This is from Joan Cole, who's alive today. She lives in Tallahassee. Uh, this was from 2001. The Catholic Church uh, identified Joseph as the patron of the universe. And they commissioned her to do a, a painting. And this is the painting she had. Again, all Joseph as an old man, right? Now, this, this idea that Joseph was an old man comes from two branches of Christianity. It comes from Roman Catholicism along with Eastern Orthodox. Uh, both Catholicism as well as Eastern Orthodox beliefs is that this idea of Mary being a virgin. Now, we know what a virgin means, right? We know what a virgin was. We want our children to be virgins until they get married, right? We try to hold it up. I mean, the idea of success, right, is to have a daughter in college that's still a virgin, right? That's the idea of success today. So we know what a virgin is. We know exactly what it is. But these camps, the Eastern Orthodox as well as the Catholic, go one step further. They identify Mary as what's called a perpetual virgin, meaning that she remained a virgin throughout her life, throughout her life. Now, the first time this teaching comes about, it's not in the Bible, was the 6th century, actually the 5th century. There was a guy named Jerome, and Jerome was, was one of the patriarchs of the early church. He was a great theologian, and he started writing that Mary was a perpetual virgin, uh, that even though she got married, uh, they never had marital relations. Now, the point is, is that nowhere in the world at any time did women that wanted to be virgins get married. That's just, that's just not done. You get married in order to have children, to have relations with your husband or your wife. That's the idea. Uh, Mary was a virgin because people at that time were chaste. Uh, they had virtues, okay? And as a result, it was surprising that Mary was pregnant, even had, if she had been with Joseph. That would also have been a scandal. 
Okay, but Mary was a virgin. The virgin conceived and was with child because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. But if you believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, it means something. It means that Joseph has to be kind of an old man because instead of being a, he, he's, he's going to marry Mary, uh, not to have relations with her, but to be a husband protector. A husband protector rather than a husband paramour. Now, paramour is a nice way of saying having marital relations, having a romantic interest. At the time Joseph and Mary uh, were together, they were betrothed. And betrothed means a, a legal binding agreement, especially in Israel. They were, it was arranged. Marriages at that time in Israel, as well as the rest of the world, uh, were arranged. It was the parents that got together, families got together, and arranged for their children to, to be married. And we know a lot about arranged marriages because that was the custom of the world. And arranged marriages actually work out pretty well. They get married based on a mutual love and respect for each other. They were married for life. So that's how people were married. Now, in Galilee, Israel and Galilee in particular, um, it was always consensual. It was always consensual. In fact, in Galilee, we have historical evidence that the bride had the opportunity at the last minute to refuse, to refuse the cup. The, 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 bride, the bridegroom would hand a cup to, and the betrothal would hand a cup, a wine cup, to the, to the bride-to-be. And if she refused the cup, she could be, uh, she could not be, she didn't have to be married. So she had the right to, to refuse. Now, we also know a few things about the average age in marriage. Back, back, back in Galilee at the time, um, brides typically were young. They were typically teenagers, uh, but the, the bridegrooms were just a little bit older. They were typically in their 20s. Marriage was a big deal. People were going to get married to have children. So that was, that's what they were supposed to do. In Israel, for example, a woman that was late, in her late 20s, even if she was married that did not have children, was considered accursed. Cursed by God because marriage was about bringing children into the world. So most likely the age gap between Joseph and Mary was probably less than 10 years, probably four to eight years, unless, unless Joseph was aristocrat and he was looking for a trophy wife, right? I mean, that's just, they did it back then just like they do it today. But Mary was no trophy wife because Joseph wasn't an aristocrat, so that wasn't the issue at all. But if we think of Joseph as being older, 50, 60 years old, well, that explains some things. That explains, for example, why we don't see him after Jesus is about 12 years old, why there's no gospel accounts of, of Joseph being with Jesus when he comes to ministry at 30 years old. Of course, he's 60 years old when he's born. He's not going to be around when Jesus is 30 years old. I mean, most likely he's going to die. However, we have to remember that the average lifespan at the time Jesus was born, was 40 years old. 40 years, that's all, that was it. Now, the good news was that if you lived to be 20, the likelihood of you living another 40 to 50 years was good. The reason the lifespan was only 35 to 40 years old is because of infant mortality. Women, women and men would have five, six, seven children, and only half of them would uh, live to be, to be an adult. So with that... Interesting story, don't you think? Interesting story. How old is Joseph? How old is Joseph? So let's go on. We're going to go ahead and get into uh, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And again, the topic of my message today is God with us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. 
But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus. So this passage is very familiar to us. We read it at Christmas. We read it every Christmas. And, and in preparing this, like I said, I was remembering I'm not preaching a Christmas sermon. I want to talk a little bit about Joseph. And that's why I named this God with us. God with us. And, and what that means. Now, we, we, that's, the God with us is taken from the 23, 23rd verse today, which I read. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You know, I love the name Jesus. It's a name that's often on my, on my lips. I, I love the song, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. And we, I use Jesus as at the end of all of my prayers. It's the word I wake up with and the word I, it's the name I go to sleep with. I, I love that name Jesus. Uh, but no, Jesus is, in the United States, um, and for us Anglos, that's a unique word, right? It refers to Jesus, the, the Christ. However, I spent some time in Mexico, and in Mexico, that's not true. In Mexico, there's a lot of little Mexican boys running around with the name Jesus. Okay, it's a very common name. And actually, in Israel, it was a pretty common name as well. Jesus was not unique with that name. There was a lot of boys born at the time of Jesus, uh, that Jesus was born, also with the name Jesus. Now, some of our purists want to use the Hebrew name, which is Yeshua. Yeshua. In fact, if you're uh, in a messianic congregation, now messianic congregations are, are Jews that believe in Jesus as the Messiah, so they insist on using Yeshua. In fact, what they'll do is they'll use the Messiah. So it's Yeshua HaMashiach, okay? And if you're with them and you use it, you have to kind of, it's from the back of your throat. Right? It's like HaMashiach, you know, and you get spit on you. But that's, but that's, they're purists and they want you to use, use that name. Well, Bless their heart, as we say. Bless their heart. That's, that's fine for them. There's another group that's very common. Uh, you know it also. It's the Watchtower group. Uh, they're known as Jehovah's Witnesses. And they believe that the only name for God that is to be used at all is, is Jehovah. Jehovah. They like that name. And Jehovah's used in the King James Bible. It's probably in your Bibles as well. But this is what they, what they forget, is that there is no J sound in Hebrew. There's no J sound in Hebrew. It's Yah. Okay, so there's no J sound, so it would never be Jehovah, it would be Yehovah. Okay, it would never be with a J. Uh, and also, that word Jehovah is actually comes from four consonants. In the Hebrew language, they don't use vowels. And the name, the Lord, okay, was used often, that's Adonai. But the other word was Yahweh. 
YHWH. And it's the same YHWH that they use different vowels becomes Jehovah. That's how it becomes Jehovah. But let's get back to the scripture. And this name that the angel mentions uh, that Jesus is not going to be known as, which is Emmanuel. And I love that because remember I said there were a lot of boys with the name Jesus, but they were not Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us. God is with us. Uh, he, he wasn't just another Hebrew boy named Jesus. It was going to be, Emmanuel speaks of God's, of, of Jesus' divinity, that he's actually God. Having God with us actually means that literally everything that seemed to be impossible is now possible. That's what it means when God is with us. When, when God is with us, Peter can walk on the wall, on the water. When God is with us, the tomb of Lazarus couldn't hold Lazarus back. Uh, water became wine. When you, when you want to pay your taxes, you can throw a line and catch a fish and find the taxes in the mouth of the fish. That's because God was with us. Leprosy, blindness, being mute, deaf, uh, all thought to be incurable were cured because God was with us, all by the touch of Emmanuel. Um, 5,000 were f fed with five barley loaves and two fish, and 12 baskets of leftovers were picked up by the 12 apostles. And then later in the same gospel, it says that seven loaves and a few fish fed 4,000. That's just the men. In addition, that were women and children, and seven baskets of leftovers were collected as well. So when we read these passages today, we can focus on Christmas, but I want to focus instead uh, on three things, on three attributes that we have available to us when God is with us. And the three attributes are that God is with us in wonder, God is with us in virtue, and God is with us in, in power. Virtue, wonder, and power. So, so the first slide, the, the, first, the first attribute is, is wonder. And we see this at the beginning of the passage. In verse 18, I, I read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That's wonder. I, I mean wonder with a capital W. It's one thing to wonder how that could happen. But wonder in the Bible often refer, refers to the miraculous. Something that we can't possibly explain, except that it happened. Uh, this word wonder is to describe many miraculous words in the Bible. And in fact, what happens, they use the word, the Bible uh, scholars use the word wonder rather than miracle. You know, today we use the word miracle probably too often. Because if everything is a miracle, then clearly nothing is a miracle. If everything is a miracle. But the word wonder is used in the Bible very selectively to describe the, the working of God. Emmanuel. That's what it says as Deuteronomy chapter 26. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. There's that word. You know, Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. But after the ten plagues and the firstborn sun dead and the sun turning to dark and the water turning to blood, Pharaoh had no other choice but he let the people go. That was because of the wonder of God. It was a, it was a miracle. You know, the very ancient, scholars are, um, oh, think of, the, think of the wonder of the, of the virgin birth. Uh, make no mistake, Matthew in our passage today has chosen his words very, very carefully, and Luke has as well. You can also read the gospel account of, of, of Luke talking about Mary, the virgin, giving birth to Jesus. It's miraculous. 
It's a wonder. It's all hinted at all the way back in Genesis. If you read the gospel, the account of creation in Genesis, uh, that's chapters 1 and 2. But then we have the fall. We have the fall of, of Adam and Eve, and that's in chapter 3. And this is what it says. Um, it says, and the Lord said to the serpent, remember that was the serpent that tempted Eve and she failed the test and she gave the fruit as well to her husband. And this is what the Lord said. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above all beasts of the field. Upon your belly shall you go. And, and I will put, uh, and, and, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So, so what is this, this idea of the seed of the woman? Well, scholars are, are very quick to tell us that in the language, both in Hebrew as well as Greek, the word here is singular, seed, meaning a seed, a particular seed, not generations. This is not just part of your children. It's not that way down the line, Eve, way down the line, there's going to be somebody along, along the line that will bruise his head and you'll, he'll bruise, bruise that, their heel. No, it says your seed, meaning singular. Well, a woman doesn't have seed. I learned that back when I was in seventh grade. I had health class, right? You know, and they showed me all the pictures and stuff like that, and all the boys were giggling in the back, you know, and we, we find out that a woman has an egg and that men have seed, not women. Women have an egg. But this says the seed of a woman. Well, that's pointing to nothing more than the virgin birth. We didn't know it back then, but... We have 20-20 vision in, in, in the rearview mirror. We see Jesus being born of a virgin. We say that's what Genesis 3 was talking about, the seed of a woman. It wasn't through Joseph. It was through the Holy Spirit. Now, before we leave the section on wonder, I, I want to mention that uh, one of the promises here was that there would be enmity, meaning anger between enemies, enemies between you, the serpent, the snake, and the woman. And I can tell you to this day, women don't like snakes. <laughs> they, my wife especially doesn't like a snake, okay? So guys don't mind so much. I don't know what that is, but little boys will play with snakes. They'll catch them by the tail. They'll swing them around. But, but women, they freak out. They, they run and hide. Uh, just, snakes create great anxiety, and I think it all goes back to this Genesis chapter 3. But let's go on. We said the, the first one was wonder, but the second one is virtue. Virtue. Uh, the Bible promotes virtue. It's to be a part of our character. It's to be about who we are, is to be virtuous. One of the first examples of virtues we have in the Bible is in the life of Noah. Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless in his time. That's Genesis chapter 6. In other translations, Noah is described as righteous, perfect, virtuous, exemplary, without sin. Uh, now, this was important to God. Because it was going to be through Noah, because he was going to protect him and put him on the ark, that Emmanuel would come. Noah was going to be saved while the rest of the world was going to be destroyed because it was going to be through Noah that ultimately a virtuous one, a righteous one, Jesus the Christ would be born. In verse 5 of the same chapter of Genesis, it says this. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually company. Remember, God saved Noah because Noah was virtuous, while the rest of the world was unrighteous, was wicked. 
and that the intent of their thoughts was only evil. Uh, but he did this because righteousness was coming through Emmanuel. God was going to be with us. The New Testament continues to promote virtue. And you can open the New Testament almost anywhere, even the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see and Jesus described all of the commandments as love God and love your neighbor. This is to be virtuous. This is to be pleasing. This is to be encouraging, to, to help your neighbor rather than hurt your neighbor. But the Apostle Paul says that there's going to be a day coming, the latter days, when it's not going to be that way. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says it's going to be more like the days of Noah. Paul says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control. Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Isn't that sad? Having a form of godliness. They're pretending somehow that they are, they are moral, but they are not. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. You know, we could summarize this that they are without virtue. That's what all of this means, is they are without virtue virtue. They are without redemption. This is why God destroyed the world in days of Noah's, because this is how the people were. And unfortunately, the Bible says that in the latter days, it's going to return to a time like, like Noah. You know, we live in a country today that 40, 50 years ago, most of us can remember back in the 60s, right? We wouldn't recognize today. Right we would not recognize what's going on today. It's, we live in an ungodly and a perverted world. Not only do we have same-sex marriage, but we have an agenda that promotes immorality. We're told, for example, that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a, a man, that men can become pregnant, that our, that our children in kindergarten and first and second grade should be subjected to sexual perversions that gender dysphoria should be something that they have at show and tell, that we should bring in men and drag and parade them in front of our kindergartners. The scripture says that we will be unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal despisers of good. And for those of you, and I realize that many of you are not on social media, God bless you, but your children are. Your grandchildren are. Your great-grandchildren are. And all of this that we talked about describes social media. Unforgiving, un unloving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. That's Facebook. That's TikTok. That's Instagram. That's, that's replete through our social media. And, and see, this is the thing I'm talking about today because this is so different from what we read of Joseph and Mary. They were virtuous people. Uh, they were principled. They were godly people. It was completely out of character for Mary to be pregnant, even if she had been with Joseph. It would have been completely out of character because he too was virtuous. Verse 19 reads this. It says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a, a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away <laughs> secretly. You see, Israel as a theocracy, meaning when God was in charge, adultery, the penalty for adultery was to be stoned. Now, that was not true under Roman law. Under Roman law, the appropriate penalty for divorce, uh, the, the appropriate penalty for adultery was divorce. That was the remedy. Um, but it came 
with great humiliation. It came with disgrace and shame. Uh, but not so today. Not so today. You know, neither pregnancy nor giving birth out of, out of wedlock. Uh, certainly not divorce. There's no humiliation there. There's no disgrace. There's no shame. In fact, all of this is promoted. It's incentivized. You know, back to the 1960s, calling that to, again to your mind, back to the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson had his war on poverty. Remember? War on poverty. Well, we lost that war. Uh, war on poverty. Uh, back then, about 7% of the babies that were born in the United States were born out of wedlock, meaning that they had a mother but no father. There was a mother, but the mother was not married. Only 7% of children at the time were born out of, out of wedlock. Now, when Lyndon Johnson passed the, the, the war on poverty and came with a thing called ADC, Aid to Dependent Children. And the critics of ADC, back then, you can look it up, said if you do this, this is, this is moral hazard. What will happen was that you're actually incentivizing women to have children out of wedlock. And this will not only create children born to a single mothers, okay, and poverty, but it will also destroy the family. And of course, those people that were educated at Yale and Harvard that knew better than anybody else said, of course not. Of course not. Well, today, 40% of all births in the United States are to single unwed, unwed women. 40%, up from 7% a generation ago. In the African-American community in the U.S., the number is 78%. Yeah. 78%. Now, here's the thing. It goes one step forward. If you're poor, living in the inner city of Detroit or Philadelphia or Chicago or Los Angeles, doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Hispanic, if you're poor living in the inner city, that rate is over 90%. 90% of the children. Remember that in the African community, there are more babies that are aborted than born. And the vast majority of those that are born are born to young, unwed, typically teenage girls. So let's move on to a better topic. That's today, a better hope. And that's with Emmanuel, meaning that God is with us with power. The angel appeared to Joseph and told him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, Joseph is told to not be afraid. And that's the definition of power. The definition of power is not to be afraid, okay? You have power. He has power because God has told him that it will be okay. Do not be afraid. God is with you in this. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon Mary, and Mary conceived and would bring forth a son. Jesus said it was the power of the Holy Spirit that will come upon his disciples. And there'll be witnesses for him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. This is the same calling for us. Because Emmanuel, God, comes to us with power so that we're no longer afraid. Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 says that after the angel had spoken to him, Joseph awake, awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. He honored her. He agreed to the calling. He fulfilled his calling and became the husband, the protector, the male figure that Jesus would need growing up. And Joseph didn't understand how this was to work. 
Joseph didn't understand genealogies. He probably didn't even understand the prophecy of Isaiah. He was just being obedient to the calling that God put on his life. He believed in the word from God. He believed in the word from the angel. And he complied with what God had said. Joseph obeyed the law. He was obedient servant. Now, what's interesting is the very last verse for today. It reads this, it says, And did not know her. Joseph did not know Mary, his wife. He had done not have marital relations with her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. This is a direct reference that Joseph did not have marital relations with, with Mary until after Jesus was born. How long? Until she fought, brought forth her firstborn son. You know, we say that a woman is uh, virtuous if she is a virgin until she is married. What does that mean? It means after she's married, she's going to have normal marital relations with her husband. At least her husband hopes so. So Joseph and Mary were pledged to be married. They were betrothed. This is a legal document. In ancient Galilee, they created a bond between the man and the woman. It was the same as being married today. No doubt, Mary and Joseph knew each other. They probably loved each other. They were looking forward to being together as husband and wife. But there's a sidetrack. The angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, she's conceived of the Holy Spirit, okay? Don't have any relations with her. Jesus is going to be born. You're going to name him Jesus. By the way, that's Emmanuel, God with us. Because of Emmanuel, we have the experience of God with wonder. You know, God with us means God with us in his incarnation. God is still with us today. Jesus promised he would never leave us or forsake us. Emmanuel means that we have a God with wonder, we have a God with virtue, we have a God with power. You know, God is with us every day. He's with us in the morning when we wake up. He's, in the e he's with us in the evening when we go to sleep. He's with us through every step during our, our day. You know, we have a wonder-working God. That's why we pray for miracles. That's why we pray for healing, because we have this wonder-working God. We can't possibly explain the wonder that God brings to us. God gives us the ability to resist temptation, to be virtuous, to live a life that is pleasing and without reproach. You know, ultimately, God gives us power. Power to overcome every obstacle, including the final obstacle, which is death. God gives us that power to be overcomers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be the first to rise. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. You know, this is the promise of God. This is the ultimate promise of God. This is the power of Emmanuel, that you will be victorious even in death, and there will be a generation that will never die in the latter days. This is the promise of God. We, we call this, by the way, the resurrection. Sometimes it's called the rapture of the church. Some people don't like to, that name. You know, bless their hearts. You know, be vigilant, be watchful, be virtuous, and we will be victorious. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for... You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors a ministry of faith dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.com.
faithdialogue.org.